You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the second and final part in our series on Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. Today we will cover the completion of Tasman's first voyage of discovery, go through the second voyage, and then wrap up the man's life and legacy. Not much for notes today, just that you can go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see a map of Tasman's voyages. I've also put links to Tasman-related materials, including his journals. With that, let's get rocking. So last time, we left Tasman and his two ships at the northernmost tip of New Zealand, pondering his next move. Tasman had, thus far, discovered the islands of Tasmania and New Zealand. In doing so, he had demonstrated that Australia was a unique landmass and not connected to a continent in the south, a place often called Terra Australis by scholars. Tasman speculated that New Zealand was the western shore of Terra Australis, but he had not done more than explore the western coast of the new land, so he really didn't know for sure. Tasman's discoveries were important, but they were not exactly what he was looking for. He had been searching for places with sophisticated and rich natives, not warlike people such as the Maori. The Dutch East India Company had hoped to find a new source of immense wealth, like Peru or China. But to this point, the lands that Tasman had sighted were rugged and sparsely populated, not exactly great candidates to make the VOC a lot of money. Still, there was time for Tasman to find something really cool. After consulting with his council, the fleet would set out on January 6, 1643, aiming for the north. The goal was to explore the waters in the area and then go to the Solomon Islands and poke around there. The Solomons, which consist of more than 900 small islands and six major ones, were barely explored, but several islands in the archipelago were known to the Dutch. From there, the small fleet could go west, to the waters around New Guinea, and then back to Batavia. As a note, Tasman doesn't really give many details about the condition of his ships, but they had sailed more than 10,000 miles, or 17,000 kilometers. Thus they would have, without question, been in rough shape. And so to the north went Tasman and his two ships. They had fair weather and progress was good, and then on January 17th, seaweed, a sign of land, was sighted. The next day, whales were spotted. Two days later, on January 19th, the ships would come to a small, rugged-looking island. They'd covered about a 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers, since leaving New Zealand. Tasman wanted to land to try and find water, but the winds weren't favorable, and the ships continued north. The next day, the Dutch would sight two other islands, one of these today we call Tonga Tapu. 
The Dutch had reached the Tongan archipelago, which consists of 171 Polynesian islands. Most of these islands are small and uninhabitable, but Tonga Tapu is the largest island in the archipelago. James Cook would later call the archipelago the Friendly Islands due to the pleasant nature of the native people. And speaking of the native people, it wouldn't be long before the Dutch ships were approached by the islanders. A canoe with three men would warily come close to the strange ships, unsure of the intentions of the Dutch. The natives were nearly naked with long, thick hair. To calm the Tongans, the Dutch gave them some white linen and then lowered them a mirror and some beads. The men in the canoe reciprocated the gesture, giving the Dutch a fish hook made of mother of pearl. It was a good start. Soon, others would arrive in their canoes, which varied in size and opulence. One catamaran was decorated with shells and conches. The Dutch gave the natives wine, nails, knives, and other items, getting coconuts in return. The Tongans would come onto the Dutch ships, amazed at what they saw. The crew had to watch their possessions, or the Tongans would try and take anything they could get their hands on. Tasman said they were a thieving people, but pleasant. He also described them as peaceful. One older man, who Tasman took for a chief, toured the ship. He would later send the Dutch a pig, yams, and coconuts as a thank you. Another native was so fascinated by the Dutch, he slept on board one of the ships that night. What followed over the next day was a frenzy of trading, as dozens of boats sailed out to the Dutch fleet. The men would trade for a hundred hogs, a hundred and fifty fowl, yams, bananas, coconuts, and even milk and cream. It's exactly what the fleet needed. Also, there was water, which was also critically needed. The Dutch would go ashore and be shown a small water source. The well was dug out by the Dutch, and eventually eight casts of water were gathered. It was a nice start, but Tasman needed a lot more. By the way, when the Dutch went ashore, they went with heavily armed soldiers. The Tongans appeared friendly, but after the incident in New Zealand, Tasman was not going to let his men be caught undefended. In exchange for all of this, the Dutch gave the Tongans cloth, nails, wire, and a bunch of other trinkets. They would also fire off one of the ship's cannons, which frightened and amazed the Tongans. Also, they played music for them with the violin and flute. The next day would follow the same pattern as the ships weaved their way north through the Tongan archipelago. Islands were sighted, natives would sail out, trading would commence. Tasman does a pretty nice job of describing the native peoples, who he finds colorful and pleasant. One interesting note in Tasman's log was an issue with lagging discipline. The recent friendly interactions with the natives had left the men a bit soft. They had plenty of food, and there was sex to be had with the natives as well. Tasman called the Tongans excessively wanton, which probably thrilled the crew. No matter, Tasman would put down some strict new rules, with flogging and loss of pay the result for sleeping on duty or not reporting to watch. Another interesting story. The Tongan people were, as noted, friendly and non-violent. It was said that they wouldn't even kill a fly, which were a common nuisance. In fact, one of the men in the fleet would swat and kill a fly that was buzzing around him, causing one of the Tongans to get upset. Anyhow, on February 1st, with the ships stocked with food and water, the Dutch fleet pushed northwest. A few days later, they reached another collection of islands. This was Fiji, another archipelago of 300-plus islands. Tasman would chart about 20 islands in the archipelago, including two of the largest. The journey through the Fiji Islands was a dangerous one, and that's because of the weather. There was constant rain, fog, and storms. Tasman wrote in his log, quote, We could hardly see a distance of two or three ships' length. End quote. The big danger was trying to find a path through these islands. Remember, none of the men knew these waters. Underwater banks, reefs, and rocks were always a threat, especially as they were not easily spotted in the heavy storms. 
and even if they were spotted, the gale force winds could carry a ship to its doom despite the best efforts of the crew. In fact, on at least one occasion, the ships narrowly avoided getting tossed onto some dangerous reefs off the northeastern part of the Fiji group. Because of the storms, the Dutch ships were unable to land and gather food or water. The fleet would eventually work their way through the Fiji Islands and head north. The idea was to get clear of the archipelago and then go west, aiming for the waters north of New Guinea. Ideally, the fleet would have explored the waters south of New Guinea. This would have meant looking for a passage between New Guinea and Australia. But these waters were unknown. No one even knew if there was a passage between these lands. Plus, the weather at this time of year was reportedly terrible south of New Guinea. At this point, Tasman's ships were likely in rough shape. They had traveled at least 12,000 miles, or 20,000 kilometers, and the weather was not promising as they pressed north. The fleet would, essentially, sail into bad weather for a month. It was a slow and frustrating voyage, dominated by fog, rain, and heavy winds. But the ships would make it. On May 22nd, they sighted land, some islands about 100 miles, or 165 kilometers, north of New Guinea. New Guinea, by the way, is the world's second largest island. Today, the eastern half of the island is the nation of Papua New Guinea, and the western side is part of Indonesia. When I talk about it, I'm referring to the entire island. Over the next few days, there were more islands, Tasman says around 15, and eventually, natives would approach the ships to trade. By April, the fleet reached the coast of New Guinea and moved west. The ships traded as they went, obtaining coconuts, fish, fowl, and anything else they could get their hands on. These exchanges were, mostly, peaceful. I want to point out that other ships that have recorded their journeys through these waters didn't always report such peaceful exchanges. The Dutch, however, did pretty well. Tasman's men seemed to understand the need to be patient with the native people. I do say these exchanges were mostly peaceful. That doesn't mean they were totally peaceful. On May 3rd, one of the ships was approached by some native canoes, and out of nowhere, an arrow was fired, hitting one of the men, although not fatally. The Dutch would grab their muskets and return fire, hitting a native in the arm as they fled. Thankfully, the men of the fleet didn't overreact to the situation. Eventually, the natives would return, and they forced the man who fired the arrow to atone or apologize for what he had done. With peace restored, trading resumed. On May 6, the ships would arrive at an island off New Guinea and trade for 6,000 coconuts and 100 bunches of bananas as they stocked up on supplies before setting out into the open water. As a reminder, the island of New Guinea is really big, the second largest in the world, and more than 1,500 miles, or 2,500 kilometers, long, and that's in a straight line. The fleet was probably sailing twice that as they meandered west along the coastline. And progress was slow as they fought the winds, plus they had to be careful of the typical hazards, such as shoals and reefs. In the end, it would take the Dutch nearly two months to cover the length of New Guinea. At that point, they would head into the open waters of the Sarum Sea, weaving their way through the many islands of the region. I want to point out that by now, these were waters Tasman and his men knew, so they were confident with each of their steps. The ships would sail south of what is now Indonesia and pass by the island of Java on June 11th. The only thing of note in Tasman's journal was on June 5th, when one of his men slipped off the ship while anchored off an island. The man had, according to Tasman, done something that would have likely landed him in hot water once back in Batavia, he had thus jumped ship to avoid prosecution. No matter, on June 15, 1643, Tasman and his ships would reach Batavia. Tasman would take one of the smaller boats ashore to report his arrival. His expedition was over. In his journal, he wrote, quote, God be praised and thanks for the happy voyage. Amen. 
And so with that, the first voyage of Abel Tasman was complete. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Abel Tasman was back in Batavia, his first expedition done. Let's review how things went. First, Tasman had covered at least 18,000 miles, or 29,000 kilometers. And that's just by using a straight line. He likely went way further than that. So kudos to him and his crew for coming back, for the most part, intact. That's pretty amazing, especially considering Tasman was going through so many uncharted waters. It's in these sort of places that ships so often meet their doom as they get caught by wonky tides or currents or simply end up, their bottoms ripped out, on a submerged reef or shoal. But Tasman had successfully navigated through all these challenges. The second item is that Tasman had opened up all sorts of new places to the rest of the world, including Tasmania, New Zealand, Fiji, and Tonga, and he had demonstrated that Australia was not part of a continent to the south. Third point is about Tasman's journal. He kept excellent records, and we are lucky to have them survive to this day. Now, all that said, things were not all puppies and kittens. Tasman had found no gold or silver or any other valuable commodities. He had found a lot of places, but nothing really that valuable with regards to trade. And he had missed the chance to investigate if there was a passage between New Guinea and Australia. A passage into the South Seas would have been valuable to the VOC. Dutch colonial governor Anthony Van Diemen and the Council for the Indies would note that while Tasman's voyage had been remarkable, he had, quote, been to some extent remiss in investigating the situation, confirmation, and nature of the lands and peoples, end quote. In the end, Tasman had discovered a lot, but there was still a lot of uncertainty. And thus, the VOC would quickly put together another expedition to fill in some of these blanks, in particular what lay between Australia and New Guinea, and what was the nature of the eastern coast of Australia. Tasman would be selected to lead this new expedition, along with Franz Vischer, the pilot major from the first endeavor. Here were the plans. They were to investigate the waters between Australia and New Guinea. From there, they were to find a passage between the two landmasses and sail down the eastern coast of Australia, even going as far as Tasmania. This would, essentially, complete a circumnavigation of Australia. The VOC expected these lands, which they now knew were quite vast, would have gold, silver, and copper. The expedition was also to find, quote, what other unknown islands may be situated between Nova Guinea, Nova means new in Dutch, and the Southland, and what treasures, advantages, profitable trade connections, and convenient passages may be there available to the benefit of the general company, end quote. 
As a note, when you hear Southland, that is referring to Australia. So, for this second voyage, Tasman would have three ships. The Lemon, with 45 men and 11 soldiers, was the flagship. The Zemu had 35 seamen and 6 soldiers. The final ship, the Brock, was small with only 14 men. In all, the fleet had 111 men and provisions for 8 months. The expedition's pilot would be Franz Fischer, who had held the same job on Tasman's first voyage. Fischer would also command the Lemon. Now, I mentioned this in the last episode, but the information we have about this upcoming expedition is limited, and that's because all the logs and journals from the voyage have been lost, and thus the second voyage is going to happen much faster for us. Oh well, that happens. And so Tasman and his three ships departed from Batavia on January 30th, 1644. The expedition would sail east across the Java Sea and onward into the Banda Sea. From there, they would head to New Guinea. In doing this, Tasman was essentially retracing his steps from the last voyage, but in reverse. However, at the western end of New Guinea, the ships would proceed along the south side of the island instead of the north. The three ships would eventually reach Yosodarsu Island, a large island in the center of New Guinea's underbelly. If you look at a map, it looks like a peninsula, but it is actually an island. From there, the fleet would press east, and after about 100 or 200 miles, things got a bit gnarly. And that is because Tasman was now entering the Torres Strait. And with that, let's take a moment to talk a little geography. Australia and New Guinea are separated by only 151 kilometers, or 94 miles, at the narrowest point. This area is called the Torres Strait. In the past, Spanish mariners had landed on the New Guinea side of the strait, while Dutch explorers had landed on the Australian side. But no one had actually mapped both sides of the entire strait and what was in between and thus many people thought New Guinea and Australia were connected. Now, you might think this would be easy to disprove by just going through the strait, but you would be wrong. And that is because the Torres Strait is very tricky and very dangerous to navigate. The reason is that it's very shallow, the depth ranging from only 7 to 15 meters, or 23 to 49 feet. And then there's our favorite underwater obstacles. The strait had nearly 600 coral reefs. And let's not forget about the islands. There are 274 of them in the strait. Cap it off with strong currents and, frequently, bad weather. Even today, there are only two routes used for commercial shipping through the strait. And so, Tasman would head east into the Torres Strait. There, he was thwarted. Every route into the strait was a dead end. Our explorer became convinced that New Guinea and Australia were one landmass. To risk his ships in this maze of islands and reefs was foolish. With that, Tasman turned south, reaching Australia at what today is the Gulf of Carpentaria, which you may remember from our Burke and Wills episodes. Over the next weeks, the ships would conduct a thorough charting of the northern coast of Australia. Once they reached the western edge of the continent, Tasman would head back to Batavia, reaching the Dutch outpost in August of 1644. He had been gone six to seven months. So the second journey of Abel Tasman was done, and to be honest, it was a lot like the first. While we don't have the specifics of the expedition, like we did the first time, Tasman appears to have brought his ships back in good order. He mapped thousands of miles of coastline along New Guinea and Australia. But again, he missed out on some critical things, at least in the eyes of the Dutch East India Company. He had not found a passage through the Torres Strait, and in missing that, he had not explored the eastern coast of Australia. Governor Van Diemen and the councillors in Batavia again rebuked Tasman, writing that he had, quote, found nothing that could be turned to profit, but only came across naked beach-roving wretches, destitute even of rice, and not possessed of any fruits worth mentioning, miserably poor, and in many places of very bad disposition. 
We are left quite ignorant what the soil of this Southland produces or contains, since the men had done nothing but sail along the coast. He who wants to find out what the land yields must walk over it in every direction. The voyagers pretend this to have been out of their power, which may to some extent be true. They would add that they intended to, quote, have everything more closely investigated by more vigilant and courageous persons than had here thereto been employed on this service, end quote. The criticism of Tasman is, in many ways, unjustified. It's easy for officials in government buildings to armchair quarterback men risking their lives as they push wooden ships into potentially dangerous waters. But the VOC wanted a return on their investment, and Tasman's journey was not going to provide that, at least not at first glance. I want to mention that missing out on the Torres Strait was really a pretty huge deal, not just because it would have given the Dutch a route into the South Seas, but more importantly, it would have revealed a picture of eastern Australia. Australia is an inhospitable place, There are deserts and swamps and lots of land that is just not friendly to farming or settlements. The exception is on the eastern side of the continent, where you'll find Australia's best farmland. If Tasman had been able to sail down the eastern coast of Australia, Dutch colonists may have followed, and the continent might still be called New Holland. Who knows? By the way, the eastern coast of Australia would not be mapped until James Cook reached the area in 1770, naming it New South Wales. Within two decades, the British would set down the first European settlement on the continent. Now, all of that said, Tasman's voyages did have immediate consequences to the world. First, his two journeys had proved that Australia was its own continent and not part of a long-imagined terra australis to the south. Second, his suggestion that New Zealand was the western side of the southern continent would cause mapmakers to start drawing in terra australis in the waters between New Zealand and South America. For more than 120 years, this theory would persist until disproved by later explorers. Third, while we have lost the journals and logs from Tasman's second journey, maps of Australia and the surrounding regions were produced based on Tasman's voyages. These maps were quite accurate, although the eastern coast of Australia is missing, and Tasmania is part of the continent. I want to stress that Tasman didn't just map Australia and New Zealand. He traveled throughout the South Pacific, finding all sorts of islands, and nearly circumnavigated New Guinea. The charts he put together would be the most important geographical documents for this region for over a hundred years, until Cook arrived, his work finally supplanting Tasman's maps. A final thing about Tasman's voyages is something I've said before, and that was that Tasman's expedition answered all sorts of questions about this region, but it left lots more unanswered and gave us a bunch of new ones. It will mean governments and explorers will eye up the area in the coming century. Now, before we go all in on Tasman's legacy, I do want to talk a little about the rest of his life, because Tasman was not a guy to head off on another expedition and never return. Instead, he became a wealthy and important man in the Far East. I'll start by saying that despite the disappointment of his bosses at the VOC regarding Tasman's voyages of exploration, he was still viewed in high regard. He was obviously a good sailor and leader. Over multiple expeditions, he had gotten his men and ships home. There's even a document expressing the VOC's quote, reasonable contentment, end quote, with Tasman. And they lauded his courage and good service to the VOC. He even got promoted, rising to the rank of skipper commander. Thus, over the next decade or so, Tasman would work out of Batavia for the VOC. He had some jobs that were administrative in nature, and other times he ventured off on trade or diplomatic missions, but no more exploring. The biggest job that Tasman got was in 1648, when he was tapped to lead a fleet to Manila in the Philippines, to try and capture the Spanish silver fleet coming from the Americas. For this expedition, Tasman had 900 seamen, 250 soldiers, and 8 ships with more than 200 cannons. 
the enterprise would be a failure. The Dutch would capture the fortress at Albay on the eastern coast of the Philippines, but eventually have to abandon it, and the Spanish ships alerted to the Dutch fleet successfully avoided capture. One Spanish ship, when faced with capture, was scuttled to deny Tasman a prize he said was, quote, as dear to us as our own life, end quote. There was some sailing around and looting and burning of Spanish outposts, but an attempt on Manila was called off due to the condition of one of the key ships. Tasman eventually departed the region and made for Siam, a.k.a. Thailand. By the way, the attack on the Philippines was the last official action of the Dutch East India Company against the Spanish in Asia. And so the expedition was a failure, and it would have some harsh consequences for Tasman, and not just because of his lack of success. In the course of the expedition, on some islands north of the Philippines, he executed two sailors without trial who had slipped out of camp one night to go carousing, likely meaning drinking and chasing women. Tasman would later say that the men had tried to desert, but no one bought that excuse. He would thus be fined, demoted, temporarily, and forced to pay restitution to the sailors' families. Within a couple of years, Tasman would be done with the VOC, as records list him as an honorably discharged ex-commander in the company as of 1653. Not a lot is known about Tasman's life as a private citizen. He stayed in Batavia and became one of the colony's biggest landowners. Records indicate he invested in some private trading ventures and even went on some trade missions. Tasman would never leave Asia, dying in Batavia on October 10, 1659. He would have been about 55 or 56 years old. The cause of his death is not exactly known, but it was reported that while his mental faculties were intact, he was, quote, sick in body, end quote. He was survived by his second wife and his daughter from his first marriage, his estate divided equally between the two. In his will, Tasman did not forget his birthplace, leaving 25 guilders to the poor of his home village of Ludegast. And that, my friends, is the life of Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. Now, I want to talk a bit about Tasman's legacy, but I have one sidetrack for you, and that surrounds the famous Tasman map, also called the Bonaparte map. Let me explain. In 1644, a map was produced of Australia based on the original charts drawn during Tasman's two voyages. It is one of the great physical artifacts of Tasman's expeditions. The map is really amazing, showing Australia, called New Holland by the Dutch. The map is blank on the east coast, and Tasmania and New Guinea are part of the Australian continent. The map is widely believed to have been produced in Batavia. It was probably a collaboration between Franz Vischer, the pilot on Tasman's expeditions, and Isaac Giselmans, a Dutch merchant and artist living in Batavia. The map is often called the Bonaparte map because it was once owned by Prince Roland Bonaparte, the great nephew of Napoleon. The Tasman map is now in the collection of the State Library of New South Wales in Sydney. Also, in 1943, a mosaic version of the map, composed of colored marble and brass, was inlaid into the vestibule floor of the aforementioned library. It's really quite cool, and I linked to a photo of it on our website. Anyhow, my sidetrack into map nerdom is done. Let's wrap up with a quick talk about Tasman's legacy. I'll start out by saying that it's easy for people to be forgotten by history, especially if you don't have that special feather you can put in your cap. And Tasman sort of falls into this category. Yes, he was the first European to reach Tasmania and New Zealand, plus a bunch of South Pacific islands. And as we noted earlier, Tasman's voyages proved that Australia was its own continent and not part of Terra Australis. But his discoveries did not kick off anything that made the world take note. I say these were great discoveries, just not great in his time. No matter, the man led a pair of small ships 
through nearly 20,000 miles or 30,000 kilometers of ocean, much of it uncharted and unknown. He mapped 8,000 miles of coastline, and he returned, dodging bad weather, dangerous waters, and a hundred other obstacles. That is admirable. The charts and journals Tosman left behind would be catnip for men of adventure and ambitious governments. It would take more than a century for other explorers to actually top the work that Tasman had done. Now, I should stress that Tasman has not been ignored by history, especially in Australia and New Zealand. In Australia, there's the Tasman Bridge, Tasman Highway, Tasman Peninsula, and the Tasman Sea. And we can't forget the ultimate prize, the Australian state of Tasmania, and the 26th largest island in the world. In New Zealand, there is a Tasman Glacier, Lake, River, Mountain, and National Park. You can find the Abel Tasman Monument at Golden Bay. You'll also find Tasman's name on an asteroid and his face on postage stamps. Also, there's the HMAS Tasman, a frigate for the Royal Australian Navy. And finally, in the Netherlands, there are streets and parks named after Tasman. And in his hometown of Ludegast, there is a museum dedicated to his life and travels. Two final notes for today. First, special thanks to a friend of the podcast, Maureen, and his wonderful mother, who helped me with the Dutch pronunciations. The Dutch language is not easy, especially for a dorky guy from Wisconsin. So thanks to them and all of you who have helped with such things. And finally, I want to mention that this podcast series, while short, is an incredible lead-in to our next series, and that is going to be an epic run at one of history's greatest explorers, Captain James Cook. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed things. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other independent podcasts. This includes the two podcasts by the wonderful Wesley Livesey, who produces the history of the Great War, as well as the history of the Second World War. It's good stuff, so enjoy. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.